You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women. Both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just the light in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight and won't steer you wrong, Johnny Appleseed himself, Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. It's good to catch up with you. Uh, it feels like it's been a while since I've done this, uh, mainly because it has. We banked up a bunch of uh, episodes, got them all prepped up for what everybody calls go time, and that's that uh, first few weeks in November, and uh, got a bunch of episodes sent out early so we could uh, not spend so much time focusing on getting podcasts ready, and they were ready for you guys to listen. And uh, now I'm getting back into the swing of things and finally catching up to speed after a few weeks here. Um, I was successful and I harvested a great buck. I think it was October 27th. Um, So here I was, you know, dreading the rut and probably uh, making my claims of who knows what's going to happen in November. And I was fortunate enough to connect on a buck. I shot it on a, a new property uh, property I talked a little bit about in some episodes this off season and uh, it was a great hunt it was a it was great buck and uh, I'll just let you guys with that because uh, coming up this Friday is going to be the whole the whole story the whole kit and kabam doing a, a fun episode recapping that hunt on our deer season special looking forward to bringing that to you guys and you know what if you're listening to this um i wouldn't mind knowing what you guys think of the deer season special episodes you know we wanted to i wanted to bring uh a, an additional deer hunting conversation related 
episode each week to you all through hunting season from October through December. And, you know, I've gotten some feedback, but I'd really like to hear what your thoughts are. I'd love if you'd reach out to me on social media or through email. You know, email would be pawoodsmanpodcast at gmail.com. And you can reach out to me at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You know, if you guys are enjoying these conversations, they're a little bit different. We've got some you know, strategies and things like that, but it's mostly uh, stories and, you know, guests that you may have heard from in the past on other shows and some people you may have never heard from. And uh, I've had a lot of fun recording them and bringing them to you guys, and uh, I do hope you're enjoying them. I hope you're finding success this year. You know, this is uh, this is the last week of the, of the, the, the main archery season. And, uh, I, I was talking about this uh, the other day with Aaron Hepler, and I said, you know, I said, there's so many more things in life that are important than deer hunting, and I would put them before deer hunting. However, I can't lie, from about October 20th to November 5th, November 10th, I wish that we could pause time because it always goes by so fast. And here we are, as you were listening to this, we've got... Uh, today, tomorrow, and Friday for the rest of archery season, and Saturday opens bear season. So I feel for you guys if you're still trying to grind it out and find a buck, but just keep in mind you got plenty of time. There's plenty of things you can do to be getting on it. So keep hunting hard. Don't give up. Stay positive. And uh, for those of you that connected, congratulations. And, you know, I'm looking forward to bear season. I always do. It's one of those things that I look forward to every year. And some years it seems like more than others. This year I'm excited because I've been saying it a bunch. The places that I frequent for bear season, there's a good mass crop. And that's got me hopeful and optimistic that we're at least going to have some opportunity. You know, I've been talking a lot about with my buddy, you know, setting drives up and getting stuff uh, organized and well-prepared and, you know, executing the best drives we can in these areas that we hunt. And, hey, hoping it all comes together. But regardless, it'll be good to be back at camp, back in the mountains. Uh, camp camaraderie is always a fun part. <clears throat> and uh, ju- I'm just real happy. It's that time of year. And, again, I'm not going to try to wish it away because – the next, uh, next few weeks are, are fun times, and they go by so quick. So hope you guys are enjoying them. Uh, this week, this episode is going to be a little bit different than we've been doing in the past. Um, it's not that it's nothing we haven't done, but we, don't, we haven't done as near as many episodes of this topic as I would like to. I'm going to try to do a better job of that in the future. First of all, great guest this week. I've got a podcast listener and uh, local PA boy, Taylor Fleischer. Taylor, you've you've probably heard of Taylor if you follow him on Instagram or you've heard any of the other podcasts. I know he's been on the Antler Up podcast. I know he's been on the Backwoods PA uh, podcast and talking things deer hunting because he is a diehard deer hunter. He's a good deer hunter. But this week with him on our show, it's going to be a little bit of a different conversation. We are going to be talking all things trapping, specifically coyotes and fox, you know, the things that he would consider the uh, the pinnacle as far as difficulty in trapping. We're going to talk about anything from scouting and e-scouting to trap preparation sets, 
uh, lures, you name it. Just going through the whole works of his opinion, what he's experienced, and relaying that back and forth between uh, hunting, too. Great conversation with Taylor. You know, whether you are a beginner trapper, you're just interested in trapping, or maybe you're uh, maybe you've been doing it for a while, you're still going to probably pick up on some things because Taylor's been trapping his whole life, and uh, you know he always does really well bringing in the fur. So let's get to this episode with Taylor real quick before we do. Just want to give a shout out to our partners, Radix Hunting guys. I have been talking Radix up big time this year, and I'm still going to talk them up. I've been really really thankful to work with a company that has great products and at affordable costs. The M Corsell cameras, I can't say enough good things about their cameras in general. From picture quality, longevity, um, simplicity of use, especially the cell camera, I really like the Scout Tech app and the features that it has. Really simple to set up, great reception, and great customer service. Been really, really thrilled to use them. Also using my Radix tree stands, solid, quiet, comfortable, all the racks gear, stick and pick camera accessories, you know, from the tree mounts to the ground mounts. I've got a couple ground mounts and some food plots. Fantastic. Really, really love Radix hunting. I think you guys should check them out. And also Huntworth. Guys, right now they have the Black Friday sale going on. I think you can get yourself up to, uh, I believe it's 30% off. And orders over $300, you get free shipping. Right now, I'm going to be back and forth with this weather between the Saskatoon Heat Boost Heavyweight Clothing and the Elkins Midweight Clothing. The, the Elkins stuff, if I run a base layer, you know, if I run something like their, uh, j- just their midweight or their, their, their lightweight base layer and the Elkins, that really cuts back on the amount of bulk in my system, but it, it has that windbreaker layer that uh, really keeps me warm. But when we get into these colder temperatures that are coming up here, switching over to stuff with heat boost, uh, really looking forward to using that. I'm using the disruption pattern. I love that digital camouflage. I did notice that when I compare it to other camos and you see people walk into woods or you compare it from a distance, I think it blends in a lot better than some camos. So just make sure you check out Huntworth Gear. And with that, guys, let's get to this week's episode. So cutting, uh, going back in between deer hunting and some uh, some time off in between in the evening hours. I'm sitting here with Taylor Fleischer. I uh, heard him on a couple other podcasts before, talking uh, mostly deer hunting. But uh, just got out of tree stand tonight, man. How's it going? Good, man. Good. How are you? Filled, filled buck tech. You got to be great. I'm sitting on cloud nine. I've I got four <laughs> critters dead with my bow this year, and my uh, I had. Uh, I was just trick or treating with the uh, with the kids, and I went to my grandparents' house. And my grandfather, you know, was a big time hunter all his life, but he was the, the kind where you took your time off in deer season, you shot a deer, and you were done. And uh, you know, the idea of shooting multiple deer or you know multiple things and just continuing to hunt for weeks and weeks was foreign to him. And uh, so, so he says to me, because he knows that I'll keep hunting, he's so are you done now or are you going to keep hunting? And I said, well, I said, believe it or not, I said, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. Two buck, a bear, a doe. I said, I'm pretty satisfied. I'll, I'll go to, to the, the, the group hunts at camp and, and stuff like that. But as far as, you know, hunting for myself to shoot stuff, I mean, yeah, I'll go, but it's not going to be a big push. I'm going to get into busy time for work. So now it's going to be time to, I guess, uh, 
enjoy it while it lasts, and now it's time to buckle down and get some work done. Right, right. It's it's easy to enjoy those that time at camp when there's no pressure, right? I mean, you feel like you're done, so you can, you know, take your time and enjoy enjoy everybody else enjoying camp. It's it's a different. For me, it's way different when you have your buck tag filled and then you go to camp because, uh, like again, it's I'm way more relaxed. Like the 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 idea of hunting with the group, bumping stuff around or or setting stuff up or helping people out, you know, there's there's no it's no pressure on me. I had one year recently that uh, I didn't have a buck tag filled. It was way different than the years I do, and I, I tell you what, I would much rather have it filled in October. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I always enjoy drinking an extra cup of coffee on the first day of rifle season, that's for sure. <laughs> so, I have to ask the question, what weighs higher for you, whitetails or trapping? Because I know trapping's up there pretty good for you, but I'm kind of curious wh- which one kind of has the most skin in the game for you. Um, At this point in my life, I would probably say... um. Archery season for whitetails has the edge on trapping, but I got to say for most of my life, uh, trapping was more important than deer hunting. So um, I've enjoyed archery hunting a lot, and I think my trapping background has kind of helped me to become a better hunter. Um, So they're hand in hand, but um, when they're both in season, I prefer to archery hunt over trap. So when you started out, you know, getting into the outdoors, was trapping one of the gateways for you? Yeah, for sure. I started trapping in elementary school with my dad. So that was, you know, I'm I'm 32 now, so we had to wait till we were 12 to start hunting. So I trapped for quite a few years before I could actually hold a rifle. Okay. Yeah, that's one of those things if if dad had a trap line, it was easy for the kids to uh to take part in it. I never grew up trapping. So it was one of those things where it was a little bit later on set in life and I do it, but now it's just a matter of the the, the time aspect. But you seem to to make sure you find time or make time for it each and every fall. Oh yeah. I mean, on on Sundays throughout archery season and and all summer long I'm prepping traps and and getting ready to go for for when that comes in and fur gets prime. So, yeah, they're I mean, they're to me they're not separated. I mean, it that's what the fall is. You, you archery hunt and and you trap. That's just that's my fall every year. Rifle season has kind of been put on the back burner. Um I don't put a whole lot of effort into that anymore. But uh those two items there, those two hobbies are that's what occupies 99% of my time in the fall and, and late summer. Well, both of those to, to do it at a high level are pretty labor intensive and gear intensive. I, I kind of wouldn't mind, you know, div- diving in a little bit more. Tell me a little bit about some of those early fondest memories of trapping. Like the, 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 you know, what were you specifically trapping when you were younger that, that really ingrained in you? Cause I'm sure, you know, maybe that's changed a little bit now, but, but tell me a little bit about that and your, some of your learning experiences. Yeah. Trapping. When I first started, um, I've always said that muskrats are the squirrels of the trapping world. I mean, most kids get started squirrel hunting. And if you get started trapping, muskrats is typically what you got started on when I was growing up. Mm. Now muskrats, that population has increased declined incredibly so i'm sure there's not a lot of kids trapping muskrats anymore uh raccoons is probably the the gateway animal now to trapping but um yeah so we with muskrats it was always creek banks and and ponds 
So I spent a lot of time walking through chest high grass with my dad and uh, checking, checking holes in the bank. And, and we did a lot of muskrat trapping. My dad was a, uh, a big time trapper and, and muskrat trapper. So he had quite an extensive line and uh, that, that uh, I just was on his line for as long as I can remember. And then when I got known enough to do my own, we did canines and raccoons and and growing up there wasn't coyotes so so red fox was your canine you were after so yeah that was just um i don't know there was a lot to learn there and i just pretty much did what my dad told me to do and and tried not to get wet <laughs> <laughs> so you know you talk about the the gateway trapping and i know a lot of people who really enjoy trapping raccoons i know people who talk about trapping mink and muskrat and, and that's but but it it just seems like now in 2023 it seems like if it's if it's anything water related for trapping you're talking about what, what i think is at the top when it comes to pennsylvania that's you know river otter and beaver and you know when it comes to land trapping coyotes or the big talk, or red fox in a lot of the places in, in the southeastern part of the state. You know, southern half of Pennsylvania, you still have good red fox populations. But, man, that's what everybody talks about. But in my mind, um, that, that seems like not the gateway in a lot of cases. But that's what everybody wants to trap, right? That, 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 is, is that in your mind like the pinnacle or the hardest when it comes to trap in Pennsylvania? Um, I would say at the very top is, is coyotes. Um, even more so than than the water critters, uh, the I've never caught a river otter. I just don't trap anywhere where there there is any or there's a season for them. Um, but I know guys that have caught them, and they say if they're there, they're easy to catch. Um, the same way that, or the same thing can be said for bobcat. If they're there, they're easy to catch. Mm-hmm. They don't have the nose like a like a coyote. There is absolutely no forgiveness when it comes to coyote trapping as far as um, making mistakes. Um, paying placement, leaving too much scent there, putting too much lure, too too little lure. I mean, it's it's incredible how how in tune with with their their environment they are. Um, beaver and some of the big the bigger water animals. Once again, sometimes access can be extremely difficult to get to those animals. Um, this past winter we were biking five miles in on public land to find beaver and that can be tough to do um especially down south here i know up towards erie and uh and some of the other in the other corner of the state there there's a lot of beaver and it's it's no problem to catch 30 40 like you're allowed up there um but down where i'm at in cumberland county you're allowed to catch five a year and i can't say i've ever caught five in cumberland county when I was a student at Penn State in Center County, um, yeah, I could get my five there pretty easy. Um, that was a, a five beaver limit as well. But uh, once again, if they're there, easy to catch. Um, when I say easy to catch, though. Relatively speaking, sti- right? Right, right. Um, they're still very smart. And a beaver that is in a swamp and you stomp up and down the banks of that swamp and you make a lot of noise and you're playing a radio or whatever, they pretty much figure out what's going on pretty quick. I mean, they're not coyote smart, but they know when something's up. Um, a coyote, man, it, they're, that is the top. 
I mean, if you can consistently catch coyotes, I'd say you've you've done as good as you could possibly do in this state. Now, out west, they got wolves. That's coyotes on steroids. Um, fortunately, we don't have to we don't have to deal with wolves here yet for for other reasons. But um, yeah, so coyotes are definitely the top. So knowing your interest in bow hunting and bow hunting is kind of like the, in my mind, and I think we'd probably agree on this, that that's kind of the top end game when it comes to big game hunting, right? At least in the state of Pennsylvania, you know, bow hunting, uh, you know, I, I guess you could break that down even finer and say the, the real, the true pinnacle is, you know, stick bow, but bow hunting just generally speaking, yeah. right? And uh, yes. I know you gravitate towards that. So does that mean that coyotes are where it's at for you for the ultimate challenge in trapping now? Yes. Yeah, that's coyotes are, are what I'm after. Um, I've had a lot of people talk to me about trapping coyotes, and, and I always recommend that they start with, you know, start with something that you feel like you can consistently catch. That that doesn't mean that, that I'm better than you or, or anything, but if you consistently, I mean, if nothing, you're the only thing you're targeting is coyotes right off the bat, you're going to get frustrated very fast. So you almost need to kind of build up your confidence, build up your understanding of, of uh, pole placement and trap offset and stuff like that. That stuff needs to be developed on a, um, on a lesser animal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, coons and, and foxes, reds and grays, they both do different things that you need to be aware of because that helps you with the coyote. So, you know, with anything, we start off scouting, right? Um, you know, I right. think about scouting whitetails and I, I know you do the same thing from the coyotes perspective and there's, there's little bit, you know, tidbits of information you're looking for, in, you know, in order to make your set and make your catch. And somebody, like you said, you, you can go through a lot of headaches starting to try to figure out the hardest thing. And it's like somebody trying to start bow hunting. You know, you start out and you're 12 years old and somebody says, I want to start bow hunting. I want to figure out how to bow hunt whitetails. And you're, you're going to have some hard hurdles to go through. And unless you've got somebody as a mentor to walk you through and kind of give you that jump in your game quicker, uh, it's, it's tough. So talk a little bit about, you know, I guess from your perspective and your, and your learning experiences growing up and everything else, talk about where that was for you. I knew you had your dad as a mentor, but, you know, talk about learning pieces of the puzzle when it came to, reading sign, looking for areas, and, and making game plans for, for your trap line, specifically related to coyotes, I'm going to say that. Yeah, so like I said, when what I learned from my father was strictly related to red fox. Um, we didn't have a lot of grays. They were more of a, they were more of a mountain canine at that time. They, they still are. They still prefer the power lines and the thickets, but red fox were the valley canine, and so everything he taught me was about red fox. The jump between red fox and coyotes, how that learning curve starts, is first of all, you need to understand that a coyote has a much bigger paw and they stand back further from, from a set. So you need to learn that if I put my trap tight to that hole or tight to my bait, a coyote's foot may never get there. He'd be stepping on the, on the bait, whereas a red fox, they're right on top of, of your bait. And a coyote, typically we shoot for nine inches back from from where that bait, the hole, the, the pee post or whatever, where that is. So the learning curve and where you learn a lot is trapping in the snow. When you're trapping in the snow and you've got a fox set in, 
and a coyote comes into your set, take note to where he stood, because that's where the trap needs to be, not where not where it was if he didn't get caught. Mm. So you learn a lot from reading sign in the snow. You learn a lot from from uh, just finding sign in general. So if you find poop on the on the farm lane going in, put a set off that farm lane if it doesn't bother the farmer if you do that. Um, oftentimes a big curve in a road or uh, a ditch intersection that comes up to the road, it's all pinch points. It's the same thing you look for for deer. Anywhere where it might restrict travel or make them go around something, that's all areas where you'll find sign. And when you find that sign, you need to either write it down in a log book or, or uh, take note of, of wind direction and everything because that all matters too when you're, when you're placing your set. So if the wind's coming across the road, don't put your set on the, the downwind side of the road. You need to make sure that if that coyote's running that road, that, 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 that he smells it on a stiff wind. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizedseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Let's back up a little bit too when we're getting into talking about making sets. Uh, talk a little bit more about, you, you said earlier about in the off season you're busy with prepping and I, I know that was equipment related too, but you know, uh, prepping also means scouting and, and tell, walk me through. I mean, I know you've probably got places that you've done the backlog, you've done the homework, you know where you want to make sets on a, on a fairly regular basis based on what predators are doing there. But walk us through how you got to that step, step from, you know, whether that's map scouting or, you know, driving around in the truck or, or what does that look like for you? Yeah. Um, the biggest, the biggest thing that I do, I have, I've pretty much been trapping the same properties for a few years in a row, which is very beneficial. But um, the biggest thing is knowing what that, what, what crop that farmer plants that year. So like a, a bean field is terrible for trapping because once those beans are off, there is nothing there and there's no, there's no cover for mice. Um, yeah, there's just nothing there. There's not really any reason for a coyote to run through the middle of a cut bean field. Um, cut corn is a whole different story. Um, cut corn is loaded with fodder, loaded with mouse holes. You know, you can find a lot of prey in in a cut cornfield. Same can be said for, uh, as far as there being nothing, is a hay field. There's not much in a, a shortcut green hay field. So you kind of have to figure out how they're using that. So as far as off-season scouting, when you look at a bean field or a hay field where there's not a lot of cover, um, the best thing to, to do is find the intersections in that field. If there's a finger of woods that goes out into that field, or if there's a wet area that they don't want to run through and they may run around that wet area, those are the things you need to find. Um, if you have historical, obviously if you have um, a historical plan there, typically that's the same every year. The only thing that changes is, is the crop sometimes. 
but I've been trapping hay farms that have been hay farms for as long as I've trapped them, and I've kind of got it figured out. How does terrain come into play when you're talking about scouting, or does it at all? It does. They run ditches a lot. They're a lot like deer in the sense that they don't like to be skylined. They'd much prefer to be down off that edge a little bit. So you rarely find poop like on the top of a hill. Um, I know some guys say that they'll go to the top of a hill to to howl, you know, to to be able to howl down into the valley, so to speak. That may be, but they're not up there to look for prey. And most of trapping is mimicking something for them to eat. Um, there's you have baited sets, and then you have territorial sets. You have sets that are a potential meal, and then sets that are like a scrape to a deer. Hey, somebody else is in my territory. I need to figure out what's going on here. Well, walk me through a little bit what that looks like, too, because you're, you're talking about terrain, how they move with terrain. You're talking about, uh, when you're talking about fields and cut, you know, crop rotation and where they're cut and how they're cut, too. What you're talking about is, is diversity of edge. And, you know, we talk, I talk about this in whitetails all the time, right? The more you stagger the canopy, the more you change the habitat mix-up and you create one after another and create that edge, you create diversity and you, you create lines of movement, right? But you know, when, when you start breaking down nitty-gritty of saying, well, hey, this is, uh, this is an area that, um, you know, this is going to be a great place for putting a food set versus uh a, a, you know some of the other sets you talked about like what does that mean like i can understand that from a a whitetail hunting perspective when i'm hunting food bedding transition stuff like that so what's the language when it comes to trapping coyotes in that sense so it's pretty much how an area would set up meaning when when you approach an area where you know that they're traveling or there's been coyote sign or fox sign or whatever they run the same routes i mean coyote if you find fox sign, a coyote's going to run the same same path. Um, but but when you're standing there and you and you say, I know I want to put a trap here. If in your mind, a mouse or a rabbit or something could live right there, then that's a great opportunity for a food set. And oftentimes, kind of the rule of thumb with trapping is, if it's good enough for one set, it's good enough for two. So if I put one there because we know that coyotes often will run in pairs especially later in the season when they're breeding but if you put one set in that would be your food set and then it would make sense to put a territorial set you know five feet from it four feet from it however it lays out but if that coyote's not hungry but he wants to mark his territory one may appeal to him and the other may not so you want diversity in your sets as well you don't want to put i know guys do but you don't want to typically put the same set over and over and over because if they have a bad experience or figure one out, they can remember that smell. They remember your smell and they say, no, I'm not, that's not a, you know, that's not a mouse. That's, that's a, that's the guy in the white truck, you know? Well, when you, uh, you talked about, uh, earlier you mentioned snow, but snow tells all. And that's, I can attest to that from hunting. Um, do you find yourself doing anything else as far as, you know, reading whether it's the game you're after or maybe the prey they're after for for learning to make sets whether that's um you know dirt roads um i've even heard of people doing stuff where they, they might have an area with a sandy bottom and they'll purposely you know clean it out and make it fresh so that way they can see fresh footprints what about trail cameras does any of that come into play for you in scouting or has it in the past 
Yeah, trail, trail cameras are beneficial, but I would never recommend putting... This. So let me let me preface this by saying a lot of people have not caught coyotes by putting a trail camera on a set. A no-glow camera will work. The, the better cameras that have absolutely zero flash, black flash, will work. But if you put a trail camera on that has a red flash, forget it. A coyote will see it every time. I'm sure everybody that runs cameras has seen a coyote look at the camera as it goes off. Coyotes pick up that flash a whole lot more than deer do. So coyotes are beneficial, or excuse me, trail cameras are beneficial in just finding out where they're running. But I would never put one on a set because it's a bad experience at that smell and they remember it. So, so I shy away from cameras on sets. I do have some of the tactic cams that have the, the low glow that um, I like to put on sets if I feel it's going to be a good one because you can learn a lot that way too, but you just have to make sure it's the right camera. Um, as far as, as uh, scouting the prey, yeah, that's, I mean, you can see mouse tracks in the snow and you can know that, that, that mice and rabbits are going under this old round bale in the, in the weeds and you can use that to your um, use that to your benefit a lot. I mean, if, if you know where the prey is, you know where they're going to be looking. So I, I like the trail camera thing just because I think tra- trail cameras are a hot topic. I mean, I love using them for all the big game hunting I do. So do you have any experiences using trail cameras on sets or in and around sets? Um, I, I know you said you don't do it a lot, but like you talk about that learning piece, like putting maybe having it on video and seeing like picking stuff up. Like, has there ever been stuff that you've had an aha moment watching something approach it, or or whether it was a successful catch or not? Like, like what do you take away from that? Because I've never done that. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from that type of of data is how they approach a set based on wind. So. You want to make your set approachable by prevailing wind. You want to make it the most appealing, obviously, in that direction. But say the wind shifts one night, as we know it does, they will come in from the side or come in from behind it where you're not expecting them to come. And that type of that type of data is very useful, but you can't put traps all around your set. You know, so so what you need to do is in order on those off wind nights you want to make it so that they can't come in from the back or they can't come in from the side be it you know a a small piece of limb or a rock the size of your fist that they don't want to have to move to get in there i mean there's small things you can do to convince them there's only one way to get in here sometimes it doesn't matter sometimes they'll roll that rock away and they'll dig it out from the back take your bait and your traps just sitting there they're that smart. I mean, they, they know, you know, something's not right on this side. So it's, it's a, every coyote's a challenge. And you think after you catch one, you'll have it figured out and it does get easier, but no, they're, they're very intelligent. So when you talk about getting into making sets and this is where you can kind of get into a lot of weeds and I want to dive into everything you, you would like to experience and discuss with it when it comes to approaching sets. But do you have anything that you look at as the, the most valuable or the, the, the most important part when you're coming to, to trapping or, or making your sets? Like is the is the presentation the most part? Is the backing the most part? Is the, 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 the trap placement to certain things? Like, like 
where's the most value, I guess, from, from that part of, of making your sets? The, the most important thing with trapping is making sure that your bed, your trap is bedded absolutely solid. Meaning, when you get that trap in there, if you take your thumb or your finger and press anywhere on that trap, it should not move a quarter inch. It shouldn't move an eighth of an inch. It should be super solid because chances are their first step isn't going to be exactly on the pan. It may be on the lever. It may be on the jaw. And if something moves under their feet, they're gone. I mean, they're, they're gone. A red fox will dig you up, and sometimes they can dig that trap out of that bed, flip it over, and never set it off. And then sometimes, just for good measure, they'll poop right on top of the trap. So they, they, they can figure out a loose trap quicker than anything. That's one thing that you will not get away with is a poorly bedded trap. That's by far the most important thing. Um, well, can we stick on that just a little bit longer? I, I want to go on to number two, but I want to stick on bedded traps a little bit longer because where I cut my teeth trapping was actually mountain ground where there was not a lot of topsoil. So, like, you start, yeah. like, like I would I would set the trap, right, and I would kind of position it where I thought I wanted it, and I would, like, I would always want to make uh, my bed, you know, just slightly bigger than my trap right so then i'd start you know a trial or whatever i'd be doing to to get it out and I'd, I'd find a rock and you pull that rock out and like i've already been making sets and until it was said and done i'm like i don't know where in the world to put this stinking trap because i've literally uprooted a million rocks and there's no topsoil and then i had it going through my head that i don't want to use too much of the of the you know the the dirt that we had you know because that's different or maybe we used peat moss hole or holes or or something along those lines and I, I want to keep it as natural as possible and I'd start overthinking and I would just give up on it so I mean when it yeah. com- when it comes to that I mean I know you talk about doing farm country stuff but I'm sure you've run into times where you, you have you, you you find a set this is where I want to put my set I get everything situated and then you run into that like can you can you talk a little bit about how you handle something like that yeah so when you get in real rocky ground we do uh, a, a mountain trip every year we go to the mountains and and we'll trap for bobcats and fisher and and coon so that's far from valley ground that's more what you're talking about and oftentimes what we find ourselves doing in real rocky situations is instead of like trying to actually bed the trap into that clay bottom or or whatever i can get in in the valley you almost have to wedge it so you almost have to get down and then your loose jaw which is the jaw away from the the dog take a rock or a stick and literally hammer it between that jaw and and push it against something in the back so if you can get yourself a depression to where the the trap is either flush or or slightly slightly below then you can just wedge it against something if you're lucky enough to have, you know, a mud, a mud backing, um, you can wedge it against that mud. If you're not, you almost have to wedge rocks the whole way around it and, and just kind of suspend it in the air, so to speak. And it's still solid, but it's not truly bedded. So you're kind of just making it tight, but you're not really pushing it down into the subsoil. Yeah, I mean, natural appearance is important, but the the fact that if they step on a jaw or a a tongue or something like that, they're they're not going to feel anything shift, right? Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes if you can't get it bedded, like 
perfect. Sometimes what you'll do is, is I refer to it as protect the jaw, meaning you'll put something kind of just outside that jaw so that they have to step over it and won't step on that loose jaw and expose that rocky trap. So if, if that bed or if that trap isn't perfect, you can kind of make it so that it's, they don't want to step on any other part of the trap too. Man, I bet it's been six or seven years since I I trapped, but I'm, I'm a million things are going through my mind as I think back to, you know, when I would make a set and how I would approach it. And, I, you know, I've talked to so many different trappers and, you know, everybody's got their own, you know, little own style and this and that. And um, let's talk about, uh, you know, you know, this time of year when we're trapping, we're not dealing with freeze-thaw and frozen ground and stuff like that. We will at a later point. That's a lot of time when I would do a lot of my trapping was after archery season. That's when I had time, right? So, f- first of all, like, do you use uh, dirt from the farm that you get out earlier in the year? Do, do you like to use substitutes like peat moss or, or buckwheat holes or, like, do you have an approach? Do you have an array of approaches for different situations? Like, what does that look like when it comes to bedding traps? And and let's let's do it two parts. Let's just do, uh, like from this time of year when you're not worried about frozen ground versus when you get into the later part of the trapping season. Yeah. So early season. I mean, if it's super early, like beginning of the season, mid October, um, you're you're pretty much safe on using the native soil, um, and just kind of back backfilling that whole trap with with native soil um so the only thing you have to be careful of in using strictly soil is you don't want too much soil to get underneath the pan of the trap or it doesn't have enough room to go down and and fire the trap so some guys will you know take a handful of crumbled leaves and shove it under that pan or they'll use pan covers which is like window screen cut to fit the inside of the jaws so that you know, that soil doesn't get under that pan. So you're safe that way in the early season. However, if you get one freeze, you're done. I mean, you're, you're screwed at that point because your, your trap is froze tight. He could dance on that trap and it's not going to fire. So even from the very beginning, I always like to have some type of, of antifreeze available. In the early, early season, typically what I'll do is backfill with with native soil and then surround the springs i shouldn't say surround i should say sprinkle around the jaws and the springs with table salt just enough that if if you get a a freeze like we're going to get here next week it's going to get down to like 26 27 that's a just enough to freeze the top of the ground you want to make sure that if he steps on that pan and it goes down that those jaws aren't froze tight to that soil so salt is a great antifreeze in the early season. I've used it throughout the season. It's really tough on on metal, on traps. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to use it a lot. Buckwheat hulls you mentioned are great in the woods. It's a great cover in the woods because it looks a lot like the leaf litter. It stands out like a sore thumb in the middle of a, of a hay field. So it blends in better in the woods. I've used it. I'm not a huge fan of buckwheat hulls. I just feel like there's better options. The cream of the crop now, uh, as it pertains to late season trapping, is wax dirt. And wax dirt is dirt that's put in the cement mixer, that's bone dry, and you put pelletized wax with it, and you heat that drum as you rotate it, and it pretty much coats all that soil with wax. And all it does is keeps water from getting down in. And if, if the 
the soil is dry and water can't get in, it can't freeze. So that's the absolute best. It takes time and money to make it, but if you have the time and you can buy, you know, 20 pounds of flake wax, you will not regret going that route. It's it's pretty much foolproof and it works perfectly. Mm. So, you know, one thing a, a lot of good trappers I've talked to have said is, you know, they live and die by the feel under their foot, right? And feeling what feels natural. So if they're they're going up and down and, you know, the time of year, whether it's frozen or not frozen, there's a consistency, right? So uh, you talked about bedding the trap solid, not making a big imprint as far as, you know, the, 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 the trap bed that you make. Um, but when you get into frozen ground, right, you're talking about keeping the ground thawed. So how do you approach that? Are you trying to keep that footprint as small as possible? That way you're basically hoping that they, they touch that, you know, inch and a half circle of a pan or, or will you get to a situation where, you know, maybe the whole entire area you want to try to keep thawed. So that way, you know, it's, it's monotony around the set or is that too much, you know, risk? Like what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So in order to blend that frozen ground and thawed ground, typically what I like to do is bed it all in, in wax dirt. And then I'll take, if there's snow on the ground, I love it because you can just take a little bit of snow in your, in your sifter and just kind of sprinkle it over the top of everything. So it gives the appearance of frozen ground. It's not underneath that light layer of snow, but they don't know that until it's too late. Um, the other thing is if it's a baited set or a dirt hole set where it looks like something is digging, um, I don't think it's quite as important that it appears to be frozen because it could have been dug 20 minutes before they got there. They don't know that. So if it's just loose soil, they don't necessarily think, well, this isn't frozen. Why isn't it frozen? So you can get away with it there too. Um, But taking some of that native frozen ground and just kind of sprinkling, I'm not talking even about a 16th of an inch of a layer, but just enough to kind of break up you know, fall dirt looks different than frozen dirt. Mm-hmm. But if you can put a little bit of that icy frozen dirt on top of it, not enough that it would, you know, jam your jaws with a piece of ice or, or whatever, but just enough to break up that that little circle outline of thaw dirt, that's that's your best bet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, we, we talk about trap beds, and that's, like you said, one of the most important things, you know, circling back i'd said what were some of the more important things um and you were going on to say you know number two and and let's revisit that yeah so um betting a trap solid is definitely number one and then number two is setting on sign so setting a trap where the where you know they run i mean you can put in a perfect set that's bedded solid but if it's in the middle of a of nowhere you're not going to, a coyote's nose is very great, but it's not going to, you're not going to pull them a hundred yards off the path they want to be on in order to go visit your, your set. So anywhere where you have intersections, one of my favorite places to set is, is the, the transition between cut corn and cut beans, because everything runs that line though. They don't want to run through corn stubble if they don't have to, but they want to be close to that corn stubble because that's where all the food is. So they run that line a lot. Um, but if you don't find sign along that line, maybe you shouldn't set it. Um, so it's all about finding sign and setting on sign. If you see a track in the snow, put a trap 
put a trap directly under that track. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous to say, but that's exactly where he stepped. And that's exactly where he'll probably step again next time he comes through there. Okay, I've heard that a lot, you know, and I've seen it too, like when bear use trails, right? I've seen it where you can see the imprint of them using similar spots where they're sticking their foot. So, I mean, are, are dogs similar? I Maybe they are, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's all a matter, a lot of this stuff is trial by error. I mean, right. you, you really do have to screw up a lot and make a lot of mistakes, and you're going to educate some educate some coyotes and some fox, but that's all part of learning. It's the same way in any outdoor sport. You're going to screw up, and those those mistakes will help you to hone in on the proper technique. Um, yeah, but, but what I was going to say with number two, in addition to that bedded trap, is a scent-free trap. Mm. So that scent-free trap, I'm not a huge, I'm not a huge scent control freak when it comes to trapping because you can mask your scent as much as you want but they know that you are still there but but the bigger thing is say you get a little bit of lure or urine or even exhaust fumes or a, a drop of gas on a trap and then bury that trap he'll dig that trap up every time i mean a foreign smell under dirt he's digging up so you can't have any foreign smell on that trap that's the absolute biggest mistake in addition to, to betting the trap improperly. So dive into that a little bit more because I've been around trappers where they wore hip boots and rubber gloves and this and that. And I've also been with some trappers that were in their blue jeans and their stinky boot, the leather boots and wore nothing more than Jersey gloves. And both of them catch coyotes. So in my mind, neither one is right or wrong. I just find that the styles are interesting. So is the, is it, not specifically your human scent that's important that's as important as other scents or other things that are just gonna basically put a neon sign that right here there's something different right right human scent anywhere that i trap coyotes smell humans all the time i mean a human scent to a coyote and i would say in 90 percent of the state is not foreign to a coyote they've smelled people they know they know that smell um, the bigger thing is that what I'm talking about with getting the scent on a trap isn't so much your human scent. It's just a scent that they are super interested in. They're not going to dig up human scent. They're going to shy away from human scent before they dig it up. It's more that how, I don't, I don't know how a coyote thinks, but they're probably in my mind, they're thinking, how in the world did the coyote pee underneath this dirt? If you got urine on the trap or how did, how did this speck of of uh coyote poop get under the ground so they're trying to figure out what the heck's going on here it's not so much that they're trying to solve what the human was doing there they're trying to figure out why that scent is is under is is on the trap as opposed to down that hole or on that pee post set that you've made so it's just a foreign scent and they're very curious well, speaking of feel and trial and error and such, you, you were talking earlier, mentioning about types of sets, whether it's a food set, a dirt hole set, or a territorial set, or you know, something along those lines. Is that something that you just kind of see after doing it a long time and, and feel like this is what I need here? Or do you have any kind of like general rule of thumb of how you like to approach a property as far as, you know, the number of sets or the number of types of sets or, you know, things like that? Yeah, early season, you focus on food. 
as you get into breeding season, you focus more on territorial sets. Um, dirt hole sets have been the king in trapping for as long as I can remember. A hole that looks like a mouse hole, you put your bait or lure or whatever down in the bottom of that hole, so they got to dig at that hole, and while they're standing there trying to figure out how to get that out, they step on your trap. That's the most common used set among trappers. Anytime you feel like you need to deviate from that means you probably have a coyote that has been to a dirt hole set before, and he's not going to go back to a dirt hole set because he had a bad experience there. So you can use other type of food sets. One of my favorite on an educated coyote is nothing more than a flat rock with the bait underneath that flat rock. There's no exposed dirt. It doesn't look like anything was digging, but there's bait under that rock. So they got to try to figure out how to move that rock to get that bait or, or whatever out from underneath it. They don't know what it is or it's the same deal with if it was on your trap. They just want to get it and, and eat it. So a, a trap-shy coyote can be extremely difficult. So that's when you go into your bag of trips, bag of tricks with, with those flat rock sets and blind sets, just setting on their trails with no bait, no lure at all. Um, that's another way to get them. Make them step over a log onto a trap where they're not even slowing down to smell anything. So when you start talking about making sets like that, that's when you start, like if you're, Will you consistently trap a property throughout the season and then change your sets according to the season and how you're seeing coyotes behave, whether that's at the set themselves or if you are having trail cameras in the area, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, those those blind sets are are great in areas where you know exact travel. You know they go through this cut piece of fence, and you can see the coyote hair as they duck under that fence. You can put a trap right at that fence crossing, or sometimes I'll trap a property that has creeks that have a log that goes over the creek. At the end of that log, you can put a set where you know when they hop off that log, they'll hop right onto that trap. So that that type of woodsmanship with trapping is what makes you a better woodsman in general for hunting anything, for understanding how animals move. If you can blind set and catch something, you've got animal, move, animal movement pretty much figured out. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point there. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Trapping is one of those things that it, it is a finite detail because, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, what's the sport in, in walking up to something you caught? I mean, you're trying to get an animal to put its foot in the exact location in, in order for you, like, you know, if you're, if you're using, you know, number two or less, I mean, you're, you're talking about a very, very small percent, um, you know, placement of where you need that foot to be. And, and there's an art to that. And it's, it's 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 an interesting art. It's an interesting process. Um, you know, you were talking about before we get on to a couple other things. I like to talk. One last thing you were talking about: bait versus call lure and stuff. I've heard so many different theories on how you use call lures, or you know, you should never use you know lure at this type of set or that type of set or this type of location. And I just get confused in the in the logic behind that. And I'm assuming it's experiences and stuff. But can you just shed light? from your perspective on um, how to use lures in sets or, you know, you talked about bait sets are, are most common, right? But, you know, the, the rabbit holes of what works from a, a lure standpoint, when to use it, when not to. Presentation is another thing. Is uh, is the flashiness of a set too much or do you want it to be a discreet that it looks like nothing's there, there's just an odor? I get really lost in that world. 
Right. When it comes to when it comes to bait and a coyote, you have actual bait and then you have lure. Bait is typically a meat-based something. It's preserved ground-up rabbit or ground-up red fox meat or, or fish. And then you have lures, which are more liquid and or or liquid in general. But you have when it comes to lore, you have gland lore, you have a curiosity lore, you have call lures, and then you have food lures. So what that breaks down to is a gland lore is a territorial scent. You would use that in an area where you want to try to challenge a dominant coyote. Or or it's typically you typically catch male coyotes on a gland lore and a urine set. So an example of that type of set would be if you take a chunk of a, a limb, a two-foot piece, and you pound it into the ground, and then you spray that stick with urine, and then you put a little bit of gland lore, kind of as that dog's, that coyote, uh, his individual smell at the base of that stick. So coyotes are a dog. They want to top other dogs. He would walk up to that stick and pee on that stick to say, no, no, this is my spot not yours and your job is to put your trap where he's going to put his front foot when he steps to pee on that so you have to offset it a little bit more than you would at a, a baited set gland lore that's where that shines especially during breeding season then you have your food lures which are used the same way a bait would be they're just not as bulky and oftentimes the reason people use lures over bait is because you can't get robbed of a lure. The lure will soak into the soil and they can never really steal it from you. It's just kind of in there and they just keep digging and digging because there's still remnants of it down there. It's not a chunk they can grab. And then your curiosity lures are typically, I use it as a, a secondary a secondary scent. So it's like beaver caster or fish oil, something not common to the area. There, it's It just makes them stick around because they're trying to figure out what the heck's going on here. Um, it's it's a secondary scent that I usually use with a food lure or a gland lure. And it's just kind of, uh, sometimes it can be just the extra smell to get them to commit. Hmm. And then you have, um, what's the last one I'm missing there? Curiosity. Or food, curiosity, gland. And oh, call. Call. Call lure is typically a skunky lure. It's a, it's a loud... It calls them to the area. That's that's how it gets its name. So if you use a call lure at ground level, once again, a coyote's a dog, they're going to want to roll in it. And if you have it exposed, they're going to roll in it just like your dog rolls in a, in a pile of rabbit poop in the backyard. So oftentimes how we use call lure is we'll put it in a tree above the set or on top of that stick I was talking about to where they can't really roll in it but it brings them to the area, and it's also a secondary scent because then you have something down the hole or under the rock that, you know, would make them commit to the set. Once they're there, they've kind of lost interest in that skunky smell, but now they're there, and there's a potential meal here. Hmm. Man, we, we talked about sets, and we talked about that stuff, and we— in my opinion, I feel like we, we've been going for a long time. We barely scratched the surface on that. We could probably go down a ton of rabbit holes with that, but I, I do want to go back a little bit, and I want to get your perspective on trap preparation because I have been blown away by all the different types of trap preparation. Um, 
and, and it doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm hoping you can shed light on it. So let's just talk about how do you like to prepare traps? How I prepare traps, brand new traps come with a little bit of oil on them. So you either have to boil them, put them in your dishwasher, if your wife will allow it, um, or you put them in a cement mixer with some sand and just kind of tumble it off. After you get that oil off, you boil it to kind of, I don't know, it, it just kind of neutralizes any residual odor on the trap. Boil it, take it out, either let them dry or you boil them with a, um, like a logwood dye, um, which just kind of darkens up the trap. A brand new trap doesn't take a lot of color because there's no rust on it to absorb that, that, uh, that color. Usually it's a dark brown or a black. Um, and it really doesn't matter if your trap is black or brown or if it's steel colored because it's going to be buried. Bottom line is we do it to make ourselves feel better that it's more of an earth tone. And and if if some of it becomes exposed due to wind blowing some of your dirt off or whatever, it still looks natural. It's not shiny. After that, I like to wax traps. So you have a pot, you melt a bunch of scent-free trapper's wax, which is just candle wax with a little extra tack in it so it sticks better. You, you get the wax hot to liquid, you dip your trap in until the trap gets up to the temperature of the wax. It kind of goes from a cloudy white to a clear, and you pull it out, and you hang it in the woods until trapping season, and it smells like, smells like trees and leaves. That's my prep method for canine traps. For like uh, raccoon traps, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Just try to make sure they're functioning properly. They don't care about your smell. They don't care about anything. That's why coyotes or raccoons are super easy to, to get started with and, and trap. Um, the big thing that's starting now, I've tried it. I'm still not a fan. I'm, I'm kind of old school at heart, is painting traps and putting um, a product called Full Metal Jacket, which is kind of like a, it's like a high polish, um, it's, it's like a floor coating. It's like a floor polish, and it pretty much just protects it from the elements. I feel that it gives off an odor that coyotes can pick up, especially an old wise coyote. If you've ever put a trap that's coated in that in a bucket of water, it kind of gets cloudy and it smells chemical, like it has a chemical smell. And my thought is, if I'm trapping in real muddy dirt, what's to keep that from putting off a chemical smell? So that's kind of new school. Old school was dyeing wax, and I'm still in the old school. And this is one thing that's left me for a long time ago, but I can't remember what it is. But I've heard people doing some type of dip method that involves gasoline. Does that's what yeah. is that? Yeah, uh, there's a there's a couple of different brands of that. Formula One is the big one, and it's I don't exactly know what what the main ingredient is, but it's a fifty fifty mix of either like gasoline or like um, acetone and you mix it 50-50 with, I assume it's just some type of a, a oil-based coating. But you, it's pretty much the same thing as painting a trap. I know a guy that lives up uh, in northern PA that traps a lot of red fox, a lot of coyotes, and that's what he does. So he has proven that that doesn't affect anything. The biggest thing with that type of a trap prep is you have to give it ample time to air out because if you try to do it on Monday and set 
traps on Wednesday, uh, it's it's still going to have some residual smell. It's it's like paint and trim or anything. I mean, it smells like paint for a little while. So you want to make sure it has ample time to air out. So all those prep methods were what I was most most commonly used to. Um, there's a there's a guy um, in a he's a member at a camp that I I go to. I'm not. It's just a camp that I hunt at every now and then. Very well known, respected trapper in our area. Very you know very good trapper. And what blew me away is when he told me that he traps for uh, bobcats, coyotes, fox, the whole nine yards of land trapping. His prep method, you know, these are, are traps that, you know, do have a, you know, a coat, you know, they're earth and toned and everything else, you know, they're not brand new traps and such. His, his prep method is take them to the car wash and pressure wash them. And that is his prep method. And I was so blown away by that, but he's, he's a successful trapper. And I, I couldn't understand that. So then it goes back to me thinking, well, what, what's the most important thing? And I, I, I keep thinking that, you know, whenever I was messing up with these, these, perfectly waxed and all this stuff traps it it had to be the set right 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 yeah so i know a lot of guys that that will do that but that's the first step then they go on to wax or or do something at the end of the trapping season you've got a a bundle of muddy disgusting traps that you've got to get cleaned somehow some guys pressure wash do the car wash thing my preferred method is to put them in a cement mixer and tumble them and all that dirt just goes away. And it gets rid of all the old wax, the abrasiveness of, of the sand and stone. It, it kind of takes you back to bare metal, and then you start your process to prep for next season. But pressure washing traps is nothing new, but I think that may be the first guy I've heard of that doesn't do anything beyond that. I mean, because my concern would be rust. Absolutely. Because rust gives off an odor. Yeah. And that's the, that's the whole thing, is to keep your traps from rusting, and be an optimum, optimum uh, function. I mean, you don't. If, if your dog rusts to your pan, it's not going to spring as fast as it's supposed to. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I. What, that's why I was so confused. And, and maybe I'm missing parts to it, but I'm almost positive that's that's that was like the majority of his prep. And uh, you know, caught you know, you know, took me trapping on the property that I trapped and showed me how it was done. Caught a lot of stuff, and it was it was kind of neat. So. Uh, I was, it was pretty cool. Like I said, we could go on a million tangents about trapping and stuff like that, but I have a couple other questions I'd like to ask you around that. So what I want to know first thing is tell me something that trapping has taught you that has made you a better bow hunter. Yeah, there's a long list there. Go on, um, start from, start from point A. Yeah. Well, I would say the absolute first thing is is understanding animal movement in regards to terrain. So knowing that that stuff doesn't like to be seen, you'd rather work a ditch than a top. Um, when you're, oftentimes the coyotes are working where the deer are. I mean, they're, they're working where they may potentially find a sick deer. So the swampy areas, you know, all that stuff kind of comes back to the, it's all, it's all parallels. I mean, coyote and deer, they're all trying to survive. A coyote survives differently than a deer, but it's it's a, a deer is a prey animal to a coyote, and a coyote survives by knowing where its prey is. Fortunately for us, deer is also our prey. We're also trying to find them. So if a coyote's in there, there's probably deer in there, and I probably ought to consider scouting that for deer while I'm in here, you know? So 
um, the biggest thing is deer or is animal movement in general. That's what I've learned the most from trapping. Um, the the value of knowing wind direction is the other one, because if you consistently set your traps on the wrong side of a path or the wrong side of a ditch, you will see your your trap rate jump exponent or your catch rate jump exponentially if you jump to the other side and the wind's helping you not hurting you it's the same deal with with deer hunting i mean it's you have to know the wind otherwise you're just pissing in the wind Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's a waste of time so that all matters and you can't you can't base a hunt or a trap position on an off wind just because the wind blows there sometimes 90 percent of the time it's going the other way so, um, yeah, wind and, and animal movement would probably be the two biggest things. Mm. So I, I had a second question. I, I think it's probably just the same question asked differently, but I'll ask it again, see if you have anything else in your mind. Has bow hunting whitetails helped in any way for trapping? I, I would say, um, if you're if you're dedicated to the craft of hunting whitetails and you put in a lot of time to scout whitetails, um, yes, it would be beneficial um, because once again you're scouting the areas where the coyotes live too. So you can probably you've probably found lots of coyote poop where deer bed. Um, they're going through there and blowing the deer out whenever they get a chance to because there might be a, a hurt one or a young one or a sick one in there that they could get coyotes know where the deer are and if we know where the coyotes are and can follow the coyotes it'll take us to the deer Mm. Mm. so one of the reasons that i've never been huge you know hugely drawn to trapping or predator hunting is uh number one uh, this is just me i have a hard time consistently killing something that i don't eat and it's not that I have any problem with it, because um, it's it's a it's a service that I really appreciate Travers do, and it's something that needs to be done. But for some reason, it just doesn't bother me to continue to do it, and that's probably why I don't have the drive to do it. And I, I have no problem shooting a raccoon. It, it doesn't. That's not what I'm getting at. It's just the the motivation to do it. And and I second that by saying one of my least favorite things to do is skin. I don't like skinning. I I would much rather, and when I tell people this, they laugh at me. I would m- much rather somebody give me a a fully skinned deer on a meat pole, ready for me to break down and debone. I would rather do that than skin, and that that equates to deer predators, whatever. So I mean, if you're catching a pile of predators, I mean, is it just uh, a labor of love for you at that point? It is. I mean, um, I I, <laughs> I fully understand that because honestly, some days, you know, if you're running a, a long line, about the last thing you feel like doing when you get home is skinning, you know, half a dozen coons and four or five coyotes or whatever. I mean, skinning is, is absolutely a labor of love. Um, that being said, the more you do of it, uh, it, it goes much quicker. Um, when I first started catching raccoons, it'd take me 15 minutes to skin one raccoon. And now I've built a skinning machine, which is essentially a winch attached to a frame 
that I'll skin a critter down to their hips. And then I have two clamps that will clamp that fur. And then I run that winch and it takes it to the front shoulders. And then I can pop those two front legs out. And then all I have is the head. So I can go from my, my old number of 15 minutes per raccoon down to about three. And you can do five raccoons in essentially what it took you to do one the old school way. Well, that's just a game changer right there. You know, one of the things yeah. that uh, I, I've, I've wanted to do, but I can't convince myself to do it for those reasons and just the, the busyness of life and not taking the time is I, I really, you know, I've got um, nieces and nephews and my two sons. And, you know, what's one of the greatest things, just like you experience when you're a young kid, get involved with is trapping hands on. You know, it's a great way to interact with the wildlife and stuff. And, uh, you know, the use of the fur. I mean, I love fur stuff, whether it's a fur blanket or, you know, make a kid a coonskin cap or something like that. And I've always wanted to incorporate that with my nieces and nephews and my kids and stuff. And, uh, that's a little bit more appealing. I might have to, I might have to pick your brain a little bit more now. Cause if that's something I would go into down the road, I would definitely want to want to do it right in that case. Yeah. Yeah. There, and there's, a lot of people ask you, you know, why why do you still trap with, with fur the way it is? Well, I can tell you it's super beneficial to, to certain critters, first of all, uh, namely turkey. I mean, if, if you have somebody that's actively trapping your property, um, your turkeys are going to love you. Um, but as far as the outlet of the fur, I think last year I might have caught close to 80 raccoons, and I didn't know what I was going to do with all that fur. Fortunately, I found a buyer in Kentucky who was in the craft industry making hats and and um, other assorted fur items, and she wanted all my raccoons. So I sold all my raccoons to her. The big thing that I struggle with now is red fox. There's not a great outlet for red fox other than getting stuff made for yourself because it's not a super durable fur. It's actually a fairly fragile fur in regards to um, what you can do with it. You wouldn't want to make a coat out of it because the fibers would break down after a while. What I've done with a lot of red fox that I've kept, and I don't hardly keep any red fox anymore. I typically let them go um, if there's not a problem with red fox there because we've got enough coyotes that they keep the red fox numbers back. But I would get teddy bears made out of them, and I give those teddy bears to friends, family who have newborn children, and it's kind of my ongoing gift as uh, a small teddy bear, a red fox teddy bear, that you have a baby, you're going to get a, a red fox teddy bear. So there's ways like that that are, are fun to use fur, but the days of $40, $50 fox where you could actually make money on them, it's over. And I don't think it'll ever come back because the world is different now. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know if the world will ever come back in any fur market case, will it? The only thing that's doing really well right now is beaver, and that's because... A lot of cowboy hats are lined with beaver fur, with sheared beaver. And Stetson buys a lot of beaver pelts. Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. So th there's certain kind of niche markets for fur, but the overwhelming big fur market isn't there. Mm. Man, we, uh, we've been rolling for a while, and uh, I, there's not a doubt in my mind that I could just pick your brain for at least another hour in the world of trapping. But we'll cut this. I tell you what, we'll just cut this one off, and we'll do another one yeah. sometime in the future. So, man, anything uh, anything we want to leave us with, whether it's trapping, deer hunting related, anything like that? Uh, 
the only thing I would say is is trapping is a great gateway to the outdoors, like you just mentioned, for kids. They can have their snacks in the truck. They can you can listen to music. You can talk. You don't have to be. Quite, it's kind of like groundhog hunting. I mean, you can kind of just be out of, out there, enjoying nature. The kids get to get away from the TV or the iPad, and uh, it's it's a great way to get kids interested in the outdoors as well as learning the value of life. Mm-hmm. Good deal. I like that. I like leaving it on, on that. Man, uh, I, I know I don't know how, if you post too much on the world of social media, but I know you do follow you. And I, I got to connect with you because you shot a giant buck last year, so that was that was my best thing. So do you, you want to, you know, if people follow along, if you do any, I don't know if you do any stories or anything like that, you want to let that there before, before we go? Yeah, yeah. My Instagram is Steel Parvo, which is related to to uh, trapping. Steel is the the trap and parvo is a disease that kills a lot of dogs. So that's my uh, that's my handle and you can find me there and I'm happy to answer any questions and and uh, I'll be sharing a lot throughout the, the trapping season on there. Good deal. Well, if I get back into trapping, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to bend your ear and ask you some more questions cuz it uh, definitely piqued my interest this week, but uh, thanks again for hopping on. And uh, yeah, hey, man, good, absolutely. Good luck trapping and good luck to your hunt. Thank you.